Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 15th. Once again, I've got three topics for all of you listeners here on today's show. At the top of the list, of course, are the two singles results we saw today at the ATP Tour Finals. Now, the better match, unequivocally, was between Casper Ruud and Taylor Fritz. That said, anytime one of Roger Federer, Serena Williams, Novak Djokovic, or in this instance, Rafael Nadal step on the court. They are automatically the biggest storyline of the day. And unfortunately for Rafa fans, once again, Rafa falls short at the ATP Tour Finals. The world number two, I don't know how else to say it, thoroughly dominated by Felix Ogier Aliassime. Felix earning a straight set win, his first at the ATP Tour Finals. And look, we're a glass half full podcast here at Cracked Rackets. I want to talk about the things Felix did well today. They are the things he has done well throughout the course of this post-U.S. Open stretch, but certainly we can get into where Rafa struggled in his match against FAA, and perhaps most importantly, the thing I want to discuss regarding Rafa here on today's show, what should the barometer for success be for Rafa at these ATP Tour Finals? Why is Rafa competing at this event, given the health issues he has had really since the start of this North American hard court stretch or this last third hard court stretch, I suppose would be the better term to use. I saw some insightful tweets that I want to share. That's always a strong sentence. It feels like in sixth grade, I don't know if any of you listeners also had a class like this at my middle school. We had a class called study skills. And in that class, a big stress of a portion of the curriculum was teaching us what were legitimate sources and what were, dare I say, illegitimate sources. So for instance, in my middle school, high school, and I use this throughout college as well, never cite Wikipedia as a primary source if you're trying to demonstrate or put together a justifiable document of evidence or you're trying to put together an argument or you're writing a paper for class. The point is Wikipedia was persona non grata. That's something they taught us in study skills. And I suppose to get full circle here, referencing tweets as interesting and references for thoughts. I feel like in the modern day study skills, a teacher would be like, don't you dare reference a tweet you saw. Now, if there was a link posted in that tweet, reference the link, but don't you dare reference a tweet in your, or maybe now because, excuse me for the voice crack there, maybe because primary sources, the person maybe you're writing about has a Twitter and they speak, maybe those are now 
I don't know, primary documents feels a bit extreme, but maybe those are now legitimate references. Anyways, tangent aside, hopefully you're doing well in your study sales course if you are currently taking it. B, I do want to get into, again, the logic behind Rafa's decision to play this event. Of course, as I already alluded to, though, the better match on the day was unequivocally the battle between Taylor Fritz and Casper Ruud. And I think there are a couple of takeaways I want to get into here on today's show from that match. A, he made two slam finals this year. He reached world number two. Are we underappreciating just how good Casper Ruud has been throughout this point to uh, to this point in his career excuse me age 23 again two slam finals I want to talk about what he's done in my favorite stretch of time the COVID era since August 2020 Casper has been really good for a really long time now and I don't know it's a November topic. Put it on the list. Is Kasparud still underrated? I actually think Kasparud might have slipped into the underrated category, or at least maybe I am underrating him. That's a thought I want to expand upon here on today's show. See, sometimes I use these shows, I was going to say as therapy sessions, but just chances to flush out what's going through my brain. Obviously, if any of you listeners are enticed by those thoughts, you can reach out to me at A.L. Gruskin or at Cracked Rackets on Twitter Again, Casper Ruud, really good down the home stretch. We can talk about the third set tiebreak, him ripping off the 5-1 lead, the craziness that happened from there. I don't think Taylor Fritz's diving volley was that impressive. I actually thought it was a bad volley. Like, he should have been there quicker, should have had the split step, should have had a cleaner read. Now that he executed the volley at all, given he did dive, was impressive. But did he need to dive? Is that how he should have hit the volley? Was the volley itself actually that good? I guess these are all things we can expand upon on today's show. But B, and the big thing from this match— I think Taylor Fritz might just be tier two, and dare I say, not elite, but very, very good. And I've had a hard time wrapping my head around Taylor Fritz being a tier two guy definitively. And what do I mean when I say tier two? Because this is something I talked about yesterday and something I think is always misunderstood by the listeners. I know some of you who have listened forever know what I mean, but we have picked up some new listeners around the way, and they say you should repeat yourself from time to time in podcasts, which God knows I do plenty of here on this mini break show and we'll do today with another Felix Ogier Alias seam segment. That said, you know, you look for Fritz. I've never questioned his tennis. We have the we have the tapes. Go back to 2017. He has always been remarkable at striking a tennis ball. Forehand, backhand, the serve. Now, he's never been a good volleyer, but the essentials to tennis, forehand, backhand, serve, return, he's always been very good at those things from a very young age. The question has always been the movement, the athleticism. Will he ever become fluid enough as an athlete that given the pace that the best of the best on the ATP Tour hit at, will he be athletic enough to track those balls down? The sample size of 2022, and it is hefty at this point, a full season's length, and certainly this match against Kasparud, his dominance on serve, his ability to play on his terms, the answer to that question might be yes. And if, we'll try that again in English, if athleticism is no longer the question for Taylor Fritz. Now, it may still define his ceiling, but if it's no longer a definitive weakness, I mean, his tennis is tier one. Like, his ability to strike a tennis ball is not questionable. And I think we saw that on display against Kasparut. I think that 
zig and that seesaw between he has gotten better as an athlete, but does that athleticism, that lack of fluidity ultimately define and limit his ceiling? I think that was very much on display in this match against Kasparud, and so that's something I want to discuss. And look, seven minutes, 20 seconds. I feel very good about that intro. We're going to leave all of that in. That is the agenda on today's show. Those are topics one and two, of course. Topic number three, I was actually in person in Champaign today for the Champaign Challenger action. I had to go see Ben Shelton, had to go see Chris Eubanks, given how well each of those guys have played over the past couple of weeks. I Got to see, he's technically in his second year at Illinois, but he wasn't allowed to play last year. But Carlos Ozalens, I have takes. He's very, very good. Patrick Kipson today, what he did to Inyaki Montez, yes. It was an indoor hardcourt match, which is never where Inyaki will truly be at his best. That said, Inyaki played really well in Knoxville, played really well during the Charlottesville Challenger, and Kipson gave him the business today. I was impressed by Kipson. I was really impressed by Tennis Sandgren. I got a lot of Champagne Challenger thoughts to to share with all of you listeners today. So FAA Nadal, Rude Fritz, Champagne Challenger thoughts. Yes, Alcaraz, world number one. What does that mean? What has he accomplished relative to others? We can get into that today as well. I know that was a storyline, certainly, on the day. That's the agenda for all of you here on today's show. With that said, shout out, as always, to you listeners who tune in day in, day out. And shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. We'll keep it brief. Tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. With that said... Let's get into what was a very exciting mid-November Tuesday in the pro tennis world. And again, let's start with Felix versus Nadal. The stats are not particularly kind to Rafa on the day. You look at the match ultimately for Felix, 6-3, 6-4 win. Felix went unbroken, and it's the second consecutive match. Rafa's failed to generate a break of serve. Rafa is a top 10 returner, top 5 returner, I believe, here this season. You look overall, Rafa third with a 30% break percentage, which, by the way, is below his career average, which is crazy because if you're over 30%, you're the elite of the elite, and I guess that's not surprising given Rafa is one of the three best returners. I'd say four best returners of all time. I'll include Agassi because everyone who has reverence for the 1990s and watched the sport, said Agassi was a transcendent returner. So if you're making a Mount Rushmore, it's Agassi, it's Djokovic, it's Nadal, and it's Murray, and you're lying to yourself. If you say anything else, Prime Murray was that good. Anyways, Rafa's third in break percentage. He has not generated a single break here in this uh, event. And yes, we're on indoor hard courts, but still, 0 for 5 in break point chances. Didn't have a break point in match number one. You look for Rafa, he hit just 12 winners in this match against Felix. Felix hit 29. Now, 15 of them were aces. And you look for Felix, that's the other big thing. We'll stick with the returning for a moment, Rafa. No break point chances in match number one. 0 for 5 today. Felix also hit 31 unreturned serves. Now, Felix played 66 or made 66 serves in the match. 31 of them went unreturned. Rafa missed 50% of his serves today. This is not, you know, some scholars have argued, folks, that if you make 
less than 50% or about 50% of your returns in the court, but you miss 50% of them, you're probably not going to win the match, particularly against a top 10 foe, particularly playing someone playing as well as Felix did throughout this match. And again, you look for Felix, 29 winners against 23 unforced errors. Now you take out the service uh, winners, 14 winners still to Rafa's 11 from the ground to 21 errors to Rafa's 15. Felix was the more aggressive player. More frequently than not, this match was being played on Felix's terms. Now, that said, Nadal fans will argue, coming out of this match, justifiably so, that Rafa fumbled this one away. Rafa was up, you know, he gets broken, and Rafa had breakpoint chances opening game of the match, 15-40. Felix comes out, hits a couple of huge serves to get himself out of that jam, hold for one love. That set a tone that, you know, throughout the course of the match, Felix was able to find big first serves in the biggest moments. And by the way, as I'm peppering in some other stats here, Felix overall for the match, very impressive on his first serve. He wins 81% of his first serve points, 39 of 48. So he played what? You look in this match, nine, so five because he served twice, plus five, 10 service games. He lost nine points behind his first serve. It's pretty darn good. You look for Felix, again, the 15 aces, obviously, as well. Again, under a little trouble in his three all service game, comes up with a couple of big first serves. By the way, well, we'll get to something else, I suppose, a little bit later. I'm not going to include that thought now, but leave it in, Westoff. Felix holds for 4 3. Rafa then races off to a 40-love lead in his 3-4 service game. What happens from there? Double fault, double fault. Uncharacteristic from Rafa Nadal. Then all of a sudden, he's flopping a backhand into the net. Now we're at deuce. Now on that deuce point, Rafa plays a vintage Rafa point, finishes at the net with a great reflex forehand drive volley that Felix can't do anything on a passing shot with. But then again, another dumped backhand. Felix hits a really good return on Deuce, so you got to give him credit there. But then, you know, Rafa uh, sprays, or maybe it was another missed backhand in the net, but Rafa hands away the break, 4-5-3. And then the thing that I think most epitomizes the Rafa performance is he just wasn't able to summon that vintage defensive excellence that he so typically does. And the two most definitive instances of that, 30-40, in that opening service game for Felix of the first set, Rafa has a great look at an on-the-run forehand pass. And how many times have we seen Rafa, at a minimum, get that ball over the net, put it at the feet of his opponent, make them hit a, a tough volley? The answer is all of the time. He wasn't able to do that. He missed the the passing shot in the net and gave Felix a free point. And it's a credit to Felix for attacking in the right moment, but Rafa misses the pass. Similarly, set point, 40-15. Felix, it's a really good forehand approach down the line. And that forehand redirect down the line was what won Felix this match because Rafa, on that set point, on the run forehand, misses it long. He just wasn't as sharp as he needed to be as a mover. He wasn't able to generate enough free points outside of landing the first serve. And once again, back-to-back matches for Rafa. You look in match number one, even in the loss against Fritz, he went 75, uh, 76% excuse me, of his first serve points. He went 72% against Felix. 
but he's been under 50% on the second serve in both of his matches. And credit to Felix, breaks Rafa pretty early. And again, Rafa was up 40-15 in his one-all service game in the second set. And this gets back to the Rafa fans will argue he fumbled the match way. Up 3-4-40 love, two double faults, a couple of sloppy unforced errors. There's the set. Again, one all, he's up 40-15. Two sloppy errors. Felix again on the deuce point connects on a really good return. And Felix was taking his backhand return on the rise really well today. Uh, But Rafa, a couple sloppy mistakes, hands the breakaway. And again, Felix fights off all five breakpoint chances that he faces today and ultimately gets through in this match 6-3-6-4. And it's a credit to Felix. Goes unbroken, wins 81% of his first serve points, made 71% of his first serves. And his 40% win rate on the second serve, that matters a lot less when you're making 71% of those first serves. Similarly, you look for Felix now in the... 20 matches he has played, and I'm excluding Laver Cup, I'm excluding Davis Cup, but in the uh, 20 matches he has played since the end of the U.S. Open, he's been broken just 14 times. Six of those 14 times came in two different matches. So he's been broken 14 times in 20 matches, but eight times in 18 matches if you exclude the worst two. That's re- that's elite. And obviously, you look for Felix, who's holding 93.5% of the time, which would be number one on the ATP Tour if extended through a full season. Yeah, he's elite behind that first serve. When he has time to set his feet on his forehand, the weight of that shot, whether it's the inside-out, inside-out, inside-in combination, which he used very effectively against Rafa today, you know, not afraid to hit into that Rafa forehand corner because the Rafa backhand was sit- uh, forehand was sitting short, so Felix was able to take his backhand a little bit early down the line or have time to get around it and hit a forehand. Felix continued to play with the same outstanding aggression he has played with since the end of the U.S. Open. And again, given how disappointing that U.S. Open ended for him in that loss, who was it, I believe, to Jack Draper, uh, for Felix to then, you know, since then, beats Nakashima, next-gen champion, beats Musetti, played really well down the home stretch, won a title, beats Hoosler, played really well down the home stretch, won the title, beats Korda. Made a couple of finals down the home stretch. Of course, the wins over Alcaraz, Runa, Tiafo, and now this straight set definitive win over Rafa. Felix has made a leap, and he will be someone everyone circles if they want to be a little bit different. If he plays like a good ATP Cup or a good warm up event for the Australian Open, people may pick him to win the event. Or, you know, we got news today, by the way, and oh, burying the lead. I apologize. Seems like Novak Djokovic might actually be allowed to play and be granted immigration, uh, be granted a visa, excuse me, back into Australia despite the immigration, we'll say, snafu that happened at the start of this year. That is probably the actual biggest news of the day because if Djokovic plays the event, he's the unequivocal favorite. If it's still sans Novak Djokovic, Felix will be an interesting pick. He played really well in Australia this year before getting knocked out by Medvedev in five sets in the quarterfinals. Of course, the year prior, he played a really fun five-set match against eventual semifinalist Aslan Karatsev. Felix usually comes out of the gates hot. He was really good at ATP Cup this year. I think he'll be a sexy pick to win the ATP, uh, to make a run in Australia. Excuse me. He certainly will be a fun pick uh, in his matchup against Fritz, which is now a deciding matchup. They're both one and one. Winner's going to advance out of the group stage. 
that's going to be really fun uh, as a nice little gift for all of us on Thursday. But again, Felix, 29 winners, 15 aces, 23 unforced errors. Half of his serves went unreturned. That's a damn good day at the office for the 22-year-old Canadian. I think we've done enough on Rafa, right? And I suppose in, in terms of his performance today, now again, big picture. I do want to share a tweet from Amy Lundy, who, of course, co-hosts three, a tennis show with newest Cracked Rackets contributor, Gail, uh, Gail sorry, leave it in though, uh, Gil Gross. You look at what Amy tweeted out earlier today. Why, you know, for Rafa continuing to play with so many predicted he'd withdraw after that Fritz loss? Well, she posited the theory, A, he has a major Latin American EXO tour starting next week. Might not be bad form to get in shape before then, play these matches. And she's not wrong. And he's going to be playing Kasparu. That's going to be really fun. B, he had a shot at world number one by playing this event and has never won the ATP Tour Finals. So two added motivations. Why not play this event? And then three, which might be the most important, he actually loves playing tennis. Has Would anyone doubt that about Rafael Nadal? That is the thing that has defined him throughout his career. You can just tell his obsession with this game, repetition after repetition, how precise and Again, uh, I guess machine-like he is on court. You can only do that if you're on court drilling these patterns time after time after time, which, excuse me, he clearly has. Like, again, you're going to knock a guy for wanting to play? Never. And, you know, the only thing I would add to Amy's tweet, what is the barometer for success for Rafa? Get through three matches healthy. If the foot holds up, yeah, you lost in straights to Fritz, which is a disappointing loss. Yeah, you're not a bad loss, but disappointing. Yeah, you lost to Felix, who, again, has played so well down the home stretch of this season. I don't think that's a bad loss even for Rafa. Um, it's been disappointing how poorly he's returned, but we get to see him healthy playing. And in the end, that's what really matters. And so I do think it's important, again, to his motivation, get some matches under his belt, prove that he's still healthy 11 months later and can put his body through another strenuous season because of how physical he plays. And, you know, then B, guy wants to play. Never, never knock a player who wants to continue to play. Let's now move over to match number two on the day. The better match of the day in Turin, of course, belonged to Taylor Fritz and Kasparud. And ultimately, it was Rude 6-3-4-6-7-6 into a second consecutive ATP Tour Finals. They also gave us some stats. You know, Taylor Fritz is 20-5 and five in his career in deciding set tiebreak. So if it's the last set of a match and it goes to 6-all, Fritz is now 20-6, and six, excuse me, overall his in his career in those instances. I think he's 14-6 and six now in tour-level instances. That's crazy good for Taylor Fritz. Meanwhile, I believe now Kasparud with this win now 8-2 and two overall in deciding tiebreakers at the tour level. Look, this was a really high-level match. There were only two breaks of serve throughout the course of this match, and certainly there were probably three and a half, maybe four, I mean, maybe five acts to this play. There was the first 20 minutes of the match where Kasparud just came out on fire. And, you know, before you knew it in set number one, Kasparud was up the quickest of three love leads. And, you know, right off the bat goes up love 40 in Fritz's opening service game. And 
did a really good job of getting Fritz stretched to the outer thirds, was so precise in where he hit his forehand, whether it was short angle, he peppered that angle, and not even short angle, just angling Fritz into the outer third, into the alley or outside of the alley on that due side, and then taking his next ball to the open court, whether it was a backhand on the rise or whether he got a look at a clean forehand. And look, Fritz just wasn't ready for that side-to-side movement. The defense wasn't where it needed to be. But, you know, credit to Taylor, steadies the ship, goes unbroken after getting broken in that opening service game and did steady the ship before Casper ultimately holds for a 6-3 first set. But then we get into act number two where Taylor was just rock solid on serve throughout the course of this match. And once again, much like Felix, he only won 44% of his second serve points, but Fritz made 70% of his first serves. He won 85% of his first serve points. Was not broken after getting broken in that opening service game of the match. You know, 32 winners for Fritz against 28 unforced errors. He had 15 aces to no double faults in this match. He won plenty of points with unreturned first serves. You know, a third of Taylor's first serves go unreturned. Now, the problem for him was Casper matched those metrics. Casper, 14 aces, which is exceptional, and 38 unreturned serves to Fritz's 34 on only one more service point. Casper matched that for Fritz throughout the course of the match, but both of them were playing elite tennis behind the first serve. And, you know, again, you look for Fritz. He was actually 7 of 8 at the net, 2 roods, 10 of 13. Obviously does hit the diving volley in that third set. And ultimately, by the way, so Rude gets that opening break in set 1. Fritz breaks at 5-4 in the third set, uh, in the second set. Rude played a really sloppy service game. A couple of unforced errors. Some good defense. And the physicality got better for Fritz throughout the course of the match. It did feel like as the match went on, Fritz got better also at anticipating where Rude might serve. And it felt like he got a cleaner looks on the return of serve and better positioning on the, and was in a better position, I should say, following the return than Casper Rude was. But... Look, this was efficient first strike tennis, and ultimately it came down to the breaker. Fritz makes a sloppy forehand error on point number one. You know, Casper then two good first serves, two good first strikes. He's up three love a mini break before you know it. You know, another good return defensive combination for him to take a 4-1 double mini break lead. Extends that to 5-1 after a good first forehand. But then Taylor Fritz made his move, and whether it was the physicality for 2-5, the ridiculous cross-court backhand on 3-5. And that cross-court backhand is why I said earlier in this show, there have never been questions about Taylor Fritz's ability to hit the tennis ball. Go watch him hit that cross-court backhand to take the the point four three five. The angle he's able to generate and the pace he's able to hit that ball on uh, with at that angle. After Casper Root hit a really good cross-court backhand to ask the question of Taylor Fritz, it was go for broke and it went in and again, Fritz, I know I don't put him in the Cordas Virev Djokovic category where I'm like, these backhands are laughable, but he probably should be. He's certainly in the top 10, and he's not 10. He's higher than that. But look, Fritz gets it to 3 5, uh, to 4 5, excuse me, hits a good first serve there. And again, that first serve winning him free points was a big theme for Fritz in this match. Casper then plays a great first strike overhead combination after decent defense from Taylor for 6 4, but. Then Casper had a brain fart, and Taylor really did a good job taking a second server turn early, pushing Casper in the backhand corner. Casper hits a sloppy backhand slice error for 6-5. All of a sudden, we're back on serve, and Taylor hits a good serve, 
draws a forehand error for six all. The six all point, though, is again where the lingering issue for Taylor Fritz emerges. Taylor hits a good backhand, gets it, is moving forward to the net. A Kasparud passing shot clips the net, tape pops up. Taylor's forced to hit a reaction swinging volley, and you know that's not where Taylor lost the point. The problem was, rather than move forward behind that swinging volley, which still went to the open court, Taylor pushed back to the ba- uh, to the baseline. And all of a sudden, his momentum's falling backwards. All of a sudden, he's back at neutral. Forehand error later, it's 7-6 Casper Root. A good forehand winner from Root. He's won the match 7-6. So I know I just gave you a full play-by-play of what happened in the breaker. But each point really was its own entity. And that's where you look big picture at this match. Both of these guys played elite tennis. That's why this was your match of the day at the ATP Tour Finals, because both of these guys played well enough to win. And we'll get to the Casper Root side of the equation in a second. But Taylor Fritz has been elite this season. Uh, Not elite, but he's been tier two. And again, tier two definition. I don't think I ever defined it. A tier two player to me is someone you know is going to get to the second week of a slam. Someone you know is just going to be in the mix. Now, they're not a contender to win the title or the favorite to win the title, but they're just going to be in the mix in the big stages of the event. They're going to be a top 10 guy. They're going to be in the mix for the ATP Tour Finals. Obviously, Taylor Fritz was tier two this season. I think that's the guy who's going to be moving forward. Round of 16 in Australia, quarterfinals at Wimbledon, uh, even a pretty decent second round showing at Roland Garros, obviously the disappointing loss for him at the U.S. Open uh, to Brandon Holt in round one. But look, you look for Taylor here this season, 44 and 20 overall. He won 69% of his matches. He's one of the 10 guys to be top 25 in both hold and break percentage this season. Taylor's been really good this year across the board. And you know, obviously winning the Indian Wells title. You look for him against top 20 opponents this season. Taylor, 9-7 and seven overall. He's now 5-6 and six against the top 10. Every metric you point to, Taylor Fritz has been very good. Now, the break percentage dips against elite competition because, again, as Kasper Ruud showed with his relentless barrage of first forehands to the open court, against elite pace or precision pace, uh, precision aggression, excuse me, you expose that Taylor Fritz's hips are stiff, that he is not the best athlete, not the most natural mover. That said, as we saw throughout the courses of set two and three, when he's on his front foot and that serve is landing, it doesn't really matter that he's not an elite athlete because the power he's able to generate, how good he is at actually playing tennis, it shines through. Now that said, Casper Rude, exceptional. In his performance today, 32 winners against 23 unforced errors, 18 winners from the ground against 20 unforced errors from the ground overall. Casper now uh, impressive, uh, 50 and 20 overall this season. Again, he joins the 50 win club with this victory in that 50 win club. Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, Felix, and now Casper. It's a pretty good list to find yourself on. You look for Casper Rude now. He's 4-4 four four against the top 10, but 13-7 and seven against the top 20 here this season. Perhaps more impressively, for Casper Rude since August 2020 now, he's 118-45. He's played exclusively ATP competition. He's won 72% of his matches for two and a half years. And he's not even 24 years old yet. Now, he turns 24 at the end of this year. So this is his age 23 season. But through his age 23 season, again, he had a two and a half year stretch 
where he's won 70% of his matches. You look for Casper. Again, big picture. Last season, he was top 25 club. This year, the break percentage, 22.4. It's 0.5% below your average for a top 25 player. I believe he's 27th in break percentage. So just misses out, but it's the fourth consecutive year he's improved his hold percentage. It's 86%. That's number 10 amongst top 50 players. His serve, his first forehand, his ability to redirect that ball, how comfortable and confident and just how good his feel is at the net. You know, the first strike he's able to play, the aggression he's able to play, the relentless. I've, I've said it before. He's the mortal righty, mortal righty version of Rafa. Like the patterns he plays with, the depth he plays with, the patterns and routineness of those patterns he plays with. It feels very replicable. Now, again, where does Kasparud get better moving forward? It does feel like sometimes with his return positioning, the backhand will sit short. Certainly on a slower hard hard court, that backhand can be a bit of a liability. That said, he drives through the backhand pretty well. And you look for him in terms of his results on the hard court since August 2020. He's 53-25 overall. He's winning 68% of his matches. You look for him at Masters level events during this stretch of time, 18-11, and at Masters Hardcore events, quarterfinals in Canada and Cincinnati last year, quarterfinals Paris last year, finals Miami this year, semifinals Canada this year. Yeah, he's pretty darn good on the hard courts. And now, of course, he's made back-to-back semifinals at the ATP finals as well. Grass courts still an issue, but of course, a French Open finalist this year. Casper's really good at everything. Unequivocally tier two. Does he have tier one upside with how relentless and routine that first serve first forehand combination is i mean his ability to just expose taylor's lack of ability taylor's weakness in changing direction it was a really good performance a really efficient performance for kasparud who again six and four over felix went unbroken in match one seven six in the third win against fritz was broken once at the end of the second set in the match this is exactly what Casper needed, given he had lost four or five coming into this event, and given he really, you know, he'd made one quarterfinal in Seoul since the U.S. Open. That's it. This is exactly what Casper needed to end the year. Just kind of remind everyone, no, 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 no. I, you're looking for players to dip out of the top ten right next season because Alex Virev's going to be healthy. Holger Runa end the year so well. Yannick Sinner at 15 feels low. Matteo Berrettini at 16 feels low, right? Those are four guys right off the bat who you're like, they should be in the top 10 next season. Well, whose spot are they taking? You feel like Hubie Hurkacz might be vulnerable. Maybe Fritz will be vulnerable post-Indian Wells points coming off. Rublev, sure, just on thinking, but like Felix is playing so well. Tsitsipas has been a staple there. Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz, you feel like you're Medvedev, you're never betting against. It's going to get crowded. We feel There might be 14 top 10 players at one point next season, and that'll be a fun thing for us to discuss here on this show. Certainly, Casper Ruud would be one of those 14 players, and he will not give up his spot quietly, particularly, again, I'll mention that record one more time since August 2010, 118, uh, 2020, excuse me, 118 and 45. He's played 163 matches in two and a half years. That's a lot of tennis, an indicative, you know, 70 matches this season. You look for him, uh, last year he played 74 I mean, obviously it's good. You get bonus matches playing the tour finals, but it's a lot of tennis on his body. 23 years old. That said, the backhand gets a little bit more consistent. He gets a little bit stronger, more confident, redirecting that ball down the line. 
what's the weakness in attacking Kasparud then moving forward? And we already know what the strengths are. It does feel like the backhand can continue to get a little bit better because it's not a vulnerability. And then all of a sudden, he's an unequivocal tier one, right? And I I think that's a topic, again, is he tier one, tier two? That's a debate for us to have, certainly, throughout the course of this offseason. With that said, again, Kasparud, 6-3, 4-6, Felix, 3-4 win. Those were your winners on the day in Turin. And with those results, Rafa, Tsitsipas, who had to go 5-0 and at this event but lost yesterday to Djokovic, now both eliminated. That means Carlos Alcaraz is your world number one to end this 2022 season. You look for Carlos, the youngest player by more than a year to end the year world number one. Now, Hewitt was 20 years old, 10 months, uh, 20 years, 10 months old, excuse me, when he ended world number one in 01. Alcaraz, 19 years, seven months old. So more than a year younger than Hewitt. Roddick was 21-4. Connors, Courier, Sampras, all early in their age 22 when they took over world number one. Alcaraz is a full year younger than Hewitt. And we feel like we're just scratching the surface. Yes, again, didn't end the year post-U.S. Open the way we would have loved to just put that final exclamation point on what was obviously a standout and, dare I say, Pantheon teenage season. Um, and now with him being the youngest world number one, this is a Pantheon teenage season. Hello, young Rafa. Hello, young Djokovic. Hello, all you young teenagers who have had success on the ATP Tour. Carlos Alcaraz needs a spot on the Mount Rushmore. Uh, let's just put in perspective how exceptional the 19-year-old has been ending the year world number one. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With that said, I was in Champagne today. And I cannot let this mini break end without offering just a few reflections from being on the ground now. Thing number one, of course, Mike Cation, Brad Dancer, two best in the business, on the ground dancer, working everyone in the crowd as usual, and his effort and ensuring there are just countless pro events in Champagne. That's why he's so good at his job. But then you see Mike working in the ground, the Pied Piper, the, you know, coup de gras, the piece de resistance, just the man of men uh, on the grounds there. Everyone's got to go kiss the ring when they see him. You always love to see it. You also love to see the upsets if you're a fan of that here on day number one or two of round one, I suppose, of this event says seeds one, two, three, excuse me, one, three, four, one and three have been knocked out. No, one, five and eight, excuse me, one, five, eight. There we go. Three of the top eight seeds knocked out in the first round. It starts with Nicolas Alvarez Verona, the Spaniard 6-6 six and six over Dennis Kudla. You look for Alvarez Verona, 21 years old, played really well in Higon, uh, 3-6 and six match that I got to call against Tommy Paul when I was over in L.A. for Tennis Channel. Look, when Alvarez Verona has time, he hits his forehand massively. And he had time against Kudla in today's match. Kudla really struggled to generate on the forehand wing. That said, not a ton of breaks in this match match. I think there was one a set a piece for each guy. Six and six for Alvarez Verona. Now that's a tough loss for Kudla because from a ranking perspective now, Kudla 104 in the live rankings. 
vomit zone for getting direct entry into the Australian Open main draw. That set a really nice win for Alvarez Verona, whose forehand in person, un missile. It is massive. Uh, I didn't get to see Gunasuaran's win over Kozlov yesterday. That was in three sets. I got to see Ethan Quinn. The serve, the forehand, it's as live in person as it looks on the live stream. He looked way more comfortable playing indoor tennis than he did a few weeks ago, understanding when to move forward, how to take the ball a little bit earlier. He was really good in a 5-2 and two win over Mathis DeBrew, new Illini player, an older brother of U.S. Open Juniors champion Gabriel DeBrew. But, of course, let's talk about the big ones. First, Ben Shelton, 3-4 and four over Carlos Ozalens. Holy crap. I mean, the Champagne has a radar gun on the court. It's inflated, but they were routinely hitting in the 130s on their serves. And, you know, Ben's combination of fluidity as an athlete and then just, sorry, Westoff, an unbelievable ability to play tennis. Like, he just, he really has it. And you know it every time you see him in person. It's that nothing is too fast for him. It's that his ability to generate pop on the kick wide, flat wide, body, T on the deuce side, the slice wide on the ad is your worst nightmare. And then he'll pop a flat T on that ad side before you know it. And then again, it's the, hit another on-the-run ridiculous passing shot after hitting one for 6-4 uh, in the third set breaker against Eubanks in Knoxville. Hits another ridiculous one against Ozalins in the first set here in Champaign and just the depth on his backhand. The fact that the ball comes off his racket a little bit faster, a little bit heavier, the sound's a little bit more explosive than even a guy like Ozalins who, oh my God, our college tennis player's in trouble this year with Ozalins. He's a little big. He's 10 pounds probably away from where he needs to be for his ideal playing weight, but he's also really young, and tennis is not the problem. I mean, his ability to snap the serve, the snap of his forehand and the racket speed, it's Nuno-esque with the explosion of that ball through the court, the pace he can generate on his backhand wing, how easy the depth is, how comfortable he is moving forward. It does remind me a little bit of Styler cross with Nuno, but without all the, you know, without the elite speed or twitchiness. I guess so Styler cross with Nuno. Um, yeah, if you put Nuno in Styler's body, it would be a little bit clumsier, but that's a really high praise for college tennis fans who know what I'm talking about here. Andre Styler of Michigan, obviously Nuno Borges, former Mississippi State All-American, now top 100 singles player. Again, on the Brad Dancer program, give him a year, two years, when he grows into his body and some of the baby fat becomes muscle, Ozans is going to be a nightmare because he moves well. And his first step, his instincts, his feel, again, you just know it when you see it. He's got, you know, he goes down a set and a break to Shelton and could have just folded the match. He didn't. He got the break back, had chances to level things before double faulting at 40-30 and ultimately getting broken for the match by Shelton for the 3-4 and four win. But Ben is top 100 good. I mean, everything Ozans did, Ben just had an answer for. And again, Keep an eye on Ozalens, folks. The wild card from Latvia, who's a former top 50 junior in the world, has been as high as 941 in the rankings, has played in a Futures final before. Just keep an eye out for him this year to have a big first year for the Illini. Uh, you look at some of the other results I got to watch on the day. Holmgren, really impressive. Three set win over Paul Jubb. He's back in Champaign courts where he has always played well. NCAA finalist here back in May. Just took the ball a little bit early. That served that forehand. Their weapons, regardless of the level. 
Chris Eubanks just overwhelmed the Adam Walton forehand, and Walton found his rhythm eventually, but too much pace for Chris Eubanks, who just the serve, the forehand, the weight of shot, just how stable his base is when he's setting his feet and then exploding into the ball. Much more comfortable as a volleyer than he used to be as well. He looked really good in his 3-3 win over Walton to keep his hopes alive for the U.S. Open, uh, excuse me, Australian Open USTA wildcard challenge. And of course, tomorrow it's a winner-take-all, or it's win to stay alive, as Eubanks is going to take on Tennis Sandgren, who's also still alive. Sandgren, 3-6-6-1-6 love against Benjamin Locke. Locke's serve is big. His forehand's pretty deep. He's solid. But Sandgren was just another level, and everything was on Sandgren's terms. He moves the ball so well around the court. His legs are ridiculous in person, and just the movement is laughable. There's no doubt the guy is a freaking athlete, and he was so much better than Benjamin Locke in sets two and three. The last guy I got to talk about, I know Stevie Johnson was pushed three sets with Hunter Heck, but I'm buying stock in Patrick Kipson. And, of course, Patrick Kipson won the USTA Boys 18's Kalamazoo singles title back in 2017, was a 17-year-old playing in the U.S. Open main draw. He's only made four Futures finals in his career. Kipson now 23 years old. Uh, you look for him this season, was injured to start the year, but uh, you know since June is 25 and 13, went on the Futures grind before starting to work his way back to challengers. And look, he's up to back up to number 558 in the world, gets a much-needed first challenger main draw victory of the season, one and four over talented Virginia Rising Jr. and Yaki Montez. And look, Yaki 5758, nicest kid in the world, fights his tail off, but everything was on Kipson's terms, and the weight of the forehand, when Kipson's feet were set and he was snapping into it, the knife of the ball coming off of his slice, it did not sit short at all, that was the other thing, Ben Shelton's slice in person looks way better than the floating nonsense it it appears to be, Uh, looks way better in person than the nonsense it appears to be on the live stream, but Oh my God, just everything coming off of Kipson's racket was explosive. Seeing him in person, I don't think there's an ounce of fat on his body. I'm buying stock in 23-year-old Patrick Kipson. He's been pretty banged up throughout his career. Obviously, he was really good his freshman year at Texas A&M. And again, a former Kalamazoo champion. He's about 6'1". You know, not the biggest, but he's a good enough athlete. And he just, he knows how to win. He knows how to be on his front foot. Again, the weight of shot is something you notice in person. And he has that ability to just outweigh any opponent and just hit that definitive forehand. I'm keeping my eye out on Kipson this week, who's going to take on Alex Vukic. Vukic, a very comfortable straight set win in round number one for the former Illini All-American, playing in a pro match under his All-American banner, which one imagine has to be fun. With that said, that's your look at Tuesday, November 15th in the pro tennis world. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Nate Walrath, hopefully, joining me on tomorrow's show to talk a ATP Tour Finals Talk Champagne once again. And, you know, if you haven't, go check out the Cracked Interviews podcast. J.Y. Obon, Tanner Stump, 
Ellen Perez, Brandon Nakashima, so many great guests that you can hear from over on that podcast feed. You want more Challenger Talk, head on over to the Great Shot podcast feed. Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro have you covered. Of course, all that content available, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets, or at AL Gruskin. With that said, shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All of that in mind for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.